Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, as part of our inspiring TED Talk series, spotlighting can't-miss TED Talks and their key takeaways, I explore Dan Erlie's famous 2013 TED Talk, What Makes Us Feel Good About Our Work. Welcome back to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Today, as part of our inspiring TED Talk series, we'll be exploring the 2013 TED Talk, What Makes Us Feel Good About Our Work. What motivates us to work? Contrary to conventional wisdom, it isn't just money, but it's not exactly joy either. It seems that most of us thrive making constant progress and feeling a sense of purpose. Behavioral economist Dan Airely presents two eye-opening experiments that reveal our unexpected and nuanced attitudes towards meaning in our work. I look forward to exploring this TED Talk with you, and I'll catch you on the flip side of this first clip. I want to talk a little bit today about labor and work. When we think about how people work, the naive intuition we have is that people are like rats in a maze, that all people care about is money. And the moment we give people money, we can direct them to work one way, we can direct them to work another way. This is why we give bonuses to bankers and pay in all kinds of ways. And we really have this incredibly simplistic view of why people work and what the labor market looks like. At the same time, If you think about it, there's all kinds of strange behaviors in the world around us. Think about something like mountaineering and mountain climbing. If you read books of people who climb mountains, difficult mountains, do you think that those books are full of moments of joy and happiness? No, they're full of misery. In fact, it's all about frostbites and difficulty to walk and difficulty of breathing, cold, challenging circumstances. And if people were just trying to be happy, the moment they would get to the top, they would say, this was a terrible mistake, I'll never do it again. (laughs) Instead, let me sit on a beach somewhere drinking mojitos. But instead, people go down, and after they recover, they go up again. And if you think about mountain climbing as an example, it suggests all kinds of things. It suggests that we care about reaching the end, a peak. It suggests that we care about the fight, about the challenge. It suggests that there's all kinds of other things that motivate us to work or behave in all kinds of ways. And for me personally, I started thinking about this after a student came to visit me. This was a student that was one of my students a few years earlier, and he came one day back to campus, and he told me the following story. 
He said that for more than two weeks, he was working on a PowerPoint presentation. He was working in a big bank, and this was in preparation for a merger and acquisition. And he was working very hard on this presentation. Graphs, tables, information. He stayed late at night every day. And the day before it was due, he sent his PowerPoint presentation to his boss, and his boss wrote him back and said, nice presentation, but the merger is canceled. And the guy was deeply depressed. Now, at the moment when he was working, he was actually quite happy. Every night he was enjoying his work, he was staying late, he was perfecting this PowerPoint presentation. But knowing that nobody would ever watch that made him quite depressed. So is it just money? And conversely, is it just joy that brings us meaning at work, why we enjoy work? He's going to lay out through explaining a few studies about how this actually isn't the case, about how that conventional wisdom doesn't really hold true for most people. And I like how he compares it to mountain climbing or to the struggle that uh, his student was experiencing as he was preparing uh, a big presentation for work that didn't end up getting used, that so much of the meaning we derive from the work that we do, and in fact the the satisfaction we derive from work, it comes from meaning and purpose, and the the ability for us to stretch and grow through the work that we do. So mountain climbers, they don't climb because it's easy. In fact, quite the opposite. They climb because of the challenge, because they're going to test their limits. They're going to stretch themselves, and they're going to see what they're really made of. And that brings a great deal of satisfaction. And same with work. In the workplace, we have opportunities to engage with our work in a variety of ways. And, and many people are disengaged at work and many people kind of go through the motions and they're mentally checked out and they're looking for the next opportunity. But those who are truly engaged in the workplace, they are energized by the work that they're doing, even when it's incredibly difficult, even when it takes a lot of mental energy, even if they have to stay late, uh, because it's a challenge and they're learning and they're growing and they have a lot of satisfaction that comes through the effort and through persisting and what they see that they've been able to accomplish. So he'll be sharing some studies now about how this really has played out in, in some experiments and we'll talk about that together. So I thought, started thinking about how do we experiment with this idea of the fruits of our labor? And to start with, we created a little experiment in which we gave people Legos and we asked them to build Legos. And for some people, we gave them a Lego and we said, hey, would you like to build this Bionicle for $3? We'll pay you $3 for it. And people said yes, and they built this Lego. And when they finished, we took it, we put it under the table and we said, would you like to build another one? This time for 270. If they said yes, we gave them another one. And when they finished, we asked them, do you want to build another one for 240, 210, and so on, until at some point people said, no more. It's not worth it for me. This was what we called the meaningful condition. People build one bionicle after another, after they finished every one of them, we put them under the table, and we told them that at the end of the experiment, we will take all these bionicles, 
we will unassemble them, we will put them back in the boxes, and we will use it for the next participant. There was another condition. This other condition was inspired by David, my student. And this other condition we call the Sisyphic condition. And if you remember the story about Sisyphus, Sisyphus was punished by the gods to, put this, to push the same rock up a hill. And when he almost got to the end, the rock will roll over and he would have to start again. And you can think about this as the essence of doing futile work. You can imagine that if he pushed the rock on different hills, at least he would have some sense of progress. Also, if you look at prison movies, sometimes the way that the guards torture the prisoners is to get them to dig a hole, and when the prisoners finish, they ask them to fill the hole back up and then dig again. There's something about this cyclical version of doing something over and over and over that seems to be particularly demotivating. So in the second condition of this experiment, that's exactly what we did. We asked people, would you like to build one Bionicle for $3? And if they said yes, they build it. And we, then we asked them, do you want to build another one for $270? And if they said yes, we gave them a new one. And as they were building it, we took apart the one that they just finished. And when they finished that, we said, would you like to build another one? This time for 30 cents less. And if they said yes, we gave them the one that they built and we broke. So this was an endless cycle of them building and we destroying in front of their eyes. Now what happens when you compare these two conditions? The first thing that happened was that people build many more Bionicles, they build 11 versus 7 in the meaningful condition versus the Sisyphus condition. And by the way, we should point out that this was not big meaning. People were not curing cancer or building bridges. People were building Bionicles for a few, a few cents. And not only that, everybody knew that the Bionicles would be destroyed sooner, quite soon, right? So there was not a real opportunity for big meaning, but even the small meaning made a difference. I think these two conditions are so interesting as they have participants build these Lego figures and then ask them if they want to continue uh, for less money. So, so what they're determining is what's the impact of pay or financial reward on continuing to persist in an activity. And then they're also checking how does that compare then with the meaning connected with the activity. Now, admittedly, uh, building a figure with Legos is not a high meaning activity. And he acknowledges that right from the get-go. So they're taking this low-meaning activity already, they're offering a little bit of money, that money decreases over time with each additional unit produced. Uh, but in the first condition, they take it, they say thank you, they move on, the person then builds another one. In the second condition, they destroy the first one right in front of the participant while they're building the second one. And th what they start to realize is that it's completely futile after they build one it gets destroyed. And the impact that that has on individuals psychologically in terms of the meaning and purpose in their work, even for a low stakes kind of activity like building a Lego figure that's already pretty low in meaning, it has a huge impact. Creating 11 figures versus seven, that's a huge difference for just a, a pretty small type of an activity. If you do the same type of an experiment in a field where there's much more meaning, where the work actually matters, you see that contrast even more dramatically. 
So it's a very interesting, very ingenious, simple little experiment that they conducted to be able to highlight the role of pay and financial reward and the, the, the link to meaning in the work that we do to produce more work and to be successful. Now we had another version of this experiment. In this other version of the experiment, we didn't put people in this situation. We just described to them the situation, much I'm describing to you now, and we asked them to predict what the result would be. What happened? People predicted the right direction, but not the right magnitude. People who were just given the description of the experiment said that in the meaningful condition, people would probably build one more bionicle. So people understand that meaning is important, they just don't understand the magnitude of the importance, the extent to which it's important. There was one other piece of data we looked at. If you think about it, there are some people who love Legos and some people who don't. And you would speculate that the people who love Lego will build more Legos even for less money, because after all, they get more internal joy from it. And the people who love Legos less will build less Legos because the enjoyment that they derive from it is lower. And that's actually what we found in a meaningful condition. There was a very nice correlation between love of Lego and the amount of Legos people built. What happened in the Sisyphic condition? In that condition, the correlation was zero. There was no relationship between the love of Lego and how much people built, which suggests to me that with this manipulation of breaking things in front of people's eyes, we basically crushed any joy that they could get out of this activity. We basically eliminated that. Soon after I finished uh, running this experiment, I went to talk to a big software company in Seattle. Can't tell you who they were, but they were a big company in Seattle. And this was a group within this software company that was put in a different building, and they asked them to innovate and create the next big product for this company. And a week before I showed up, the CEO of this big software company went to that group, 200 engineers, and canceled the project. And I stood there in front of 200 of the most depressed people I've ever talked to. And I described to them some of these Lego experiments, and they said they have felt like they have just been through this experiment. And I asked them, I said, how many of you now show to work later than you used to? And everybody raised their hand. I said, how many of you now go home earlier than you used to? And everybody raised their hand. I asked them, how many of you now add not so kosher thing to your expense reports. And they didn't really raise their hand, but they took me out to dinner and showed me what they could do with expense reports. And then I asked them, I said, what could the CEO have done to make you not as depressed? And they came up with all kinds of ideas. They said the CEO could have asked them to present to the whole company about their journey over the last two years and why they decided to do. He could have asked them to think about which aspect of their technology could fit with other parts of the organization. He could have asked them to build some prototypes, some next generation prototype, and see how they would work. But the thing is that any one of those would require some effort and motivation. And I think the CEO basically did not understand the importance of meaning. If the CEO, just like our participants, thought that the essence of meaning is unimportant, then he would care. And he would tell, well, the moment you, I directed you in this way, and now I'm starting directing you in this way, everything would be okay. But if you understood how important meaning is, then you would figure out that it's actually important to spend some time, energy, and effort in getting people to care more about what they're doing. 
This experience at the Seattle-based company is such a classic cautionary tale, and it plays out over and over again in organizations throughout the U.S. and throughout the world all of the time. And it, it's it's completely normal, you know, for you to start going down a direction and then you have to pivot for a variety of reasons. Many external uh, to the organization, maybe a client cancels an order or a new project gets canceled or you just pivot and you go in a different strategic direction. That happens all the time. But what you can't do as a leader is simply say, well, I guess we're not doing that anymore, so let's pivot and let's move to this other thing. Because people have been working on it. They've been working hard on it. And if you just move on to the next thing without taking a moment, at least, to talk about what they've accomplished, to give them a chance to share what they'd accomplished, and to find other ways to maybe integrate that back into the work they're going to be doing now that they're pivoting, if you don't do that, people are going to get so frustrated uh, because they have just been spinning their wheels for nothing and because they feel like it's futile effort. And so when he asked the workers at that Seattle-based company, how many of them now go home earlier, come in later? Um, and we could probably have asked them a whole range of things related to employee engagement and satisfaction and, and their effort levels and their performance and their motivation. And across the board, you're going to see those types of responses that people are going to pull back, they're going to reduce their effort and their contribution. And it's not inevitable. It doesn't need to happen that way. If we approach things differently as leaders, if we recognize the importance of meaning, if we recognize that people want what they do to matter, and even if it doesn't end up driving new revenues and it doesn't end up being adopted by the company, uh, that's not really the end goal even. It's like with the mountain climbing. It's the challenge. It's the climb that is invigorating in the stretch that occurs. People just need to be validated in the work that they're doing and the meaning that they're deriving from their work. And it doesn't really cost anything to do that other than maybe a little bit of time and opportunity cost. Uh, but but it's it's much better to, to do that up front than to have to deal with the negative performance outcomes and engagement outcomes that will result when we don't allow people to share the work that they've done. The next experiment was slightly different. We took a sheet of paper with random letters and we asked people to find pairs of letters that were identical next to each other. That was the task. And people did the first sheet, and then we asked them if they want to do the next sheet for a little bit less money, and the next sheet for a little bit less money, and so on and so forth. And we had three conditions. In the first condition, people wrote the name on the sheet, found all the pairs of letters, gave it to the experimenter. The experimenter would look at it, scan it from top to bottom, say, uh-huh, and put it on the pile next to them. In the second condition, people did not write their name on it. The experiment looked at it, took the sheet of paper, did not look at it, did not scan it, and simply put it on a pile of pages, right? So you take a piece, you just put it on the side. In the third condition, the experimenter got the sheet of paper and directly put it into a shredder. 
what happened in those three conditions? In this plot, I'm showing you at what pay rate people stopped. So low numbers means that people worked harder. They worked for much longer. In the acknowledged condition, people worked all the way down to 15 cents. At 15 cents per page, they basically stopped this effort. In the shredder condition, it was twice as much, 30 cents per sheet. And this is basically the results we had before. You shred people's um, efforts, output, you get them not to be as happy with what they're doing. But I should point, by the way, that in the shredder condition, people could have cheated. They could have done not so good work because they realized that people were just shredding it. So maybe the first sheet you would do a good work, but then you see nobody is really testing it, so you would do more and more and more. So in fact, in the shredder condition, people could have submitted more work and get more money and put less effort into it. But what about the ignored condition? Would the ignored condition be more like the acknowledge or more like the shredder or somewhere in the middle? It turns out it was almost like the shredder. Now, there's good news and bad news here. The bad news is that ignoring the performance of people is almost as bad as shredding their effort in front of their eyes. Ignoring gets you a whole way out there. The good news is that by simply looking at something that somebody has done, scanning it and say, uh-huh, that seems to be quite sufficient to dramatically improve people's motivations. So the good news is that adding motivation doesn't seem to be so difficult. The bad news is that eliminating motivation seems to be incredibly easy, and if we don't think about it carefully, we might overdo it. So this is all in terms of kind of negative motivation or eliminating negative motivation. This next version of the experiment with the letter is so interesting to me in the three conditions. One, where the person completes the letters, they hand it to the, the uh, researcher who then scans it and says, uh-huh, and then puts it on a stack of papers. The second condition where they don't scan it at all, they just put it on a stack of papers. And the third condition where they put it directly into the shredder. And what's so interesting to me is the elements of motivating and demotivating individuals. It doesn't take much effort, much feedback at all from the, the researcher uh, in order for the participant to continue to perform, to continue to complete the work and do another page. Just a simple quick scan for a couple seconds and a quick uh-huh is enough to help continue to, to generate meaning and they'll continue to perform the work. But completely ignoring them or even just shredding their, their work uh, right in front of them is incredibly demotivating. And, you know, it, it may seem like, well, I'm busy. I don't have the time. I can't put the effort in to give continual feedback. People need to be less uh, entitled and they need to be less needy and they just need to do their work. They I shouldn't have to respond to them constantly. If, if that's our mindset as a leader, we are going to so quickly demotivate people and we forget that it really doesn't take that much effort just a little bit of an intentionality and a little bit of feedback, not a huge amount, just a little bit can go a really long way to help motivate. And if we don't do anything, though, that's going to demotivate people so quickly, just as much when we ignore them as if we actually just publicly humiliate them or shred their effort right in front of their very eyes. The next part, I want to show you something about the positive motivation. So there is a, a store in the U.S. called the IKEA. And IKEA is a store with kind of okay furniture that takes a long time to assemble. And 
I don't know about you, but every time I assemble one of those, it takes me much longer, it's much more effortful, it's much more confusing, I put things in the wrong way. I can't say I enjoy those pieces. I can't say I enjoy the process, but when I finish it, I seem to like those IKEA pieces of furniture more than I like other ones. And there's an old story about cake mixes. So when they started cake mixes in the 40s, they would take this powder and they would put it in a box and they would ask housewives to basically pour it in, stir some water in it, mix it, put it in the oven, and voila, you had cake. But it turns out they were very unpopular. People did not want them. And they thought about all kinds of reasons for that. Maybe the taste was not good. No, the taste was great. What they figured out was that there was not enough effort involved. It was so easy that nobody could serve cake to their guest and say, here is my cake. No, 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 it was somebody else's cake. It's as if you bought it in the store. It didn't really feel like your own. So what did they do? They took the eggs and the milk out of the powder. <laughs> now, you had to break the eggs and add them. You had to measure the milk and add it. Mixing it, now it was your cake. Now everything was fine. Now, I think a little bit like the IKEA effect, by getting people to work harder, they actually got them to love what they're doing to a higher degree. So how do we look at this question experimentally? We asked people to build some origami. We gave them instructions to how to create origami, and we gave them a sheet of paper. And these were all novices, and they built something that was really quite ugly. Nothing like a frog or a crane. But then we told them, we said, look, this origami really belongs to us. You worked for us, but I'll tell you what, we'll sell it to you. How much do you want to pay for it? And we measured how much they were willing to pay for it. And we had two types of people. We had the people who built it, and we had the people who did not build it and just looked at it as external observers. And what we found was that the builders thought that these were beautiful pieces of origami, <laughs> and they were willing to pay for them five times more than the people who just evaluated them externally. Now, you could say, if you were a builder, do you think that, oh, I love this origami, but I know that nobody else would love it? Or do you think, I love this origami, and everybody else would love it as well. Which one of those two is correct? Turns out the builders not only loved the origami more, they thought that everybody will see the world in their view. They thought everybody else would love it more as well. I love the IKEA example and their next version of their experiment where they're trying to test positive motivation by having people participants uh, create origami pieces. And it's so interesting as we look at the effort that we put into a project, whether it's building furniture from Ikea or it's being a novice and trying to create origami pieces, that when we are putting in effort, we're more likely to be satisfied and value at a higher level that piece of furniture or that origami that if I'm putting together that piece of furniture, I'm gonna be happier with that piece of furniture and I'm going to even highlight it in my home more than a pre-built piece of furniture. Or if I'm creating the origami piece, I'm gonna be willing to pay more for it when I've gone through the effort to build it myself 
to, to fold it, to create it myself, versus if I'm just evaluating it, if I'm just seeing what someone else has done, and then I have to determine how much I'm going to pay. Five times more people are willing to pay when they've put in the effort themselves. Same with the cake mix. So fascinating that people, uh, a cake mix is not hard. Uh, it's not like uh, cracking some eggs and putting in a little bit of milk is a lot of extra effort. But people are willing to buy cake mix. They're willing to make cake mix when they have to put in that minimal amount of effort. They're willing to do that more and pay for that cake mix uh, more than if if it's just a powder that all they have to do is add a little bit of water, put it into the pan, and now they're ready to go. So effort matters. The amount of uh, effort we put into a task, into a project, uh, whether it's at home or in the workplace, it matters for our motivation and it matters for how much we're willing to value and pay for that work, that service. In the next version, we try to do the IKEA effect. We try to make it more difficult. So for some people, we gave the same task. For some people, we made it harder by hiding the instructions. At the top of the sheet, we had little diagrams of how do you fold origami. For some people, we just eliminated that. So now this was tougher. What happened? Well, in an objective way, the origami now was uglier. It was more difficult. Now, when we looked at the easy origami, we saw the same thing. Builder loved it more. Evaluators loved it less. When you looked at the hard instructions, the effect was larger. Why? Because now the builders loved it even more. They put all this extra effort into it, and evaluators, they loved it even less. Because in reality, it was even uglier than the first version. Of course, this tells you about something about how we evaluate things. Now think about kids. Imagine I asked you, how much would you sell your kids for? Right? Your memories and association and so on. Most people would say, for a lot, a lot of money on good days. <laughs> but imagine this was slightly different. Imagine you did not have your kids, and one day you went to the park, and you, played, you met some kids, and they were just like your kids, and you played with them for a few hours. And when you were about to leave, the parents said, hey, babe, by the way, just before you leave, if you're interested, they're for sale. <laughs> How much would you pay for them now? Most people say not that much. No? And this is because our kids are so valuable, not just because of who they are, but because of us, because they're so connected to us and because of the time and connection. And by the way, if you think that IKEA instructions are not good, think about the instructions that come with kids. Those are really <laughs> tough. By the way, these are, these are my kids, which of course are wonderful and, and so on which comes to tell you one more thing, which is much like our builders, when they look at the creature of their creation, we don't see that other people don't see things our way. In the second version of the experiment, they just up the ante on the effort, and lo and behold, what do they find? The greater the effort required, the greater the value placed on that object. And the bigger the disconnect between my own perception of the value of an object that I created through incredible effort versus the value that an external evaluator will place on an object based on just the the inherent uh, value of what they observe in the object. So the more effort we put into something, the more satisfied we are with it, the more engaged we are with that the performance of that task, the more likely we're going to be to 
to pay more for it, to put more effort into it, to continue the work uh, related to it. And and the 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 notion of of uh, buying and selling kids, of course, it, it's just humorous. It's just a joke. He's not actually advocating for for that. But I I can relate, you know, into in terms of the work that I've put into my own kids. I have six children. Anyone who's listened to this podcast has heard me refer to that on occasion. It's a lot of work to raise children. I think of when I would wake up in the middle of the night when they were babies to feed them with a bottle. And you know what? The quickest surefire fire way to develop that relationship with that baby um, and to just grow your love for them and your willingness to, con- to continue to sacrifice for them and to work hard for them and to be willing to really do anything for them, it comes through that effort. When I put in that effort, when I serve those children, when I put um, my whole heart into helping them, then over time that bond grows and over time, I'm willing to literally do anything for them. Now, of course, in the workplace, we're not dealing with that same kind of uh, an extreme example. But the more effort that is required for a task, the more we're going to value it. And coming back to the first set of experiments uh, that he talked about in his TED Talk, as managers, as leaders, we need to recognize how important that effort is towards the meaning that people hold in their work. And we need to value the effort that they put in. Let me say one last comment. If you think about Adam Smith versus Karl Marx, Adam Smith had a very important notion of efficiency. He gave an example of a pin factory. He said pins have 12 different steps. And if one person does all 12 steps, production is very low. But if you get one person to do step one and one person to do step two and step three and so on, production can increase tremendously. And indeed, this is a great example and the reason for the Industrial Revolution and the efficiency. Karl Marx, on the other hand, said that the alienation of labor is incredibly important and how people think about the connection to what they're doing. And if you make all 12 steps, you care about the pin. But if you make one step every time, maybe you don't care as much. And I think that in the Industrial Revolution, Adam Smith was more correct than Karl Marx. But the reality that we've switched, and now we're in the knowledge economy. And you can ask yourself, what happens in the knowledge economy? Is, is efficiency still more important than meaning? I think the answer is no. I think that as we move to situation in which people have to decide on their own about how much effort, attention, caring, how connected they feel to it. Are they thinking about labor on the way to work and in the shower and so on? All of a sudden, Mark has more things to say to us. So when we think about labor, we usually think about motivation and payment as the same thing. But the reality is that we should probably add all kinds of things to it. Meaning, creation, challenges, ownership, identity, pride, etc. And the good news is that if we added all of those components and thought about them, how do we create our own meaning, pride, motivation, and how do we do it in our workplace and for the employees, I think we could get people to both be more productive and happier. Thank you very much. The bottom line is that while money is important and while differentiation of components of labor is important for efficiency, that money is what researchers call a satisficer. It's not really a motivator. It, it, you have to pay people fairly and equitably. And if you don't, you demotivate them. 
but money in and of itself isn't going to drive a lot of greater performance or motivation or engagement or certainly not innovation. And so we need to find other ways to derive motivation from our own work and as leaders to help create a context in which people can feel motivated in their work. If we break tasks up into too small of individual pieces and we no longer can really associate our piece of the task as it connects with the entire whole and the holistic outcome of the work, then that really can demotivate us. That really can uh, reduce the amount of meaning and purpose and connection that we see. Additionally, it's simply easier. So if anyone who's ever worked in a factory on an assembly line, you know how mind-numbingly dull that work is. And it's I, I've done that myself. I've worked in a factory as well. And those were long days. Uh, that was hard to stay motivated. And when you start to add even just a little bit of task identity to the work that you're doing, uh, where you see the connection of what you're doing to the whole, uh, the meaning and purpose and the motivation goes up dramatically. And so as leaders, as managers, we need to find ways to make sure that we help our people understand what they're doing and how it connects to the whole. And in a knowledge economy, as he was saying in his TED Talk, as in a knowledge economy, we need people who can think holistically, who can think interdisciplinary types of thoughts, who can connect things. And a knowledge economy requires us to not just have an individual narrow little piece. We need to see the interconnections. And if certainly if we want to drive innovation, we need to be able to do the same. So I, I think this TED Talk is so fascinating because it debunks some of the kind of classic understanding of how we're going to motivate people. And money just really isn't it. It's through meaning. It's through purpose. It's th and that's derived often through the amount of effort that we put into a task and the, the opportunity we have to share our work with others and get feedback on that from others, even if it doesn't end up being implemented, even if we do all of that work and the client goes with a different project or we have to pivot and go in a different strategic direction. Just getting the feedback and having the opportunity to share and the difficulty that uh, we went through to complete that project, all of that produces meaning, it produces purpose, that challenge gives us a sense of accomplishment, all of which are so, so important as we try to find ways to engage our people, to motivate our people, and to help them feel connected with their work. I hope you've enjoyed this TED Talk and a little bit of discussion around the key points and the different experiments that were carried out uh, that he describes. And as always, I hope you find meaning and purpose at work each and every day, and I hope you have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free, interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. 
I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.